Samson Kovacs from The Theology Pit here, reminding you that you can get a hold of me on Skype at The Theology Pit. Just open up Skype, go to The Theology Pit, and uh, you can send me a message there. You can uh, maybe contact me if I'm hanging around. Uh, We're going to continue with atheism today, so stay tuned. Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. All right, everybody, and welcome to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I am, of course, your friendly neighborhood host and theologian, Samson Kovach, and we are going to be continuing with our study here on uh, atheism. I mean, last episode, we looked at how, you know, Christians generally tend to make atheists because we don't explain things, because we don't teach properly. And, you know, that is an issue in the church. Um, This, in my, I don't know, I guess guess in my ministry, I am not uh, one that is huge when, you know, hugely attracted to apologetics. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong with that. I do enjoy apologetics. I like explaining the faith to unbelievers. That it's not what bothers me, but discipleship always has seemed to be more my forte to help uh, believers understand what they believe. But that doesn't excuse uh, me from having the ability to explain to non-Christians or people who used to be Christians what uh, Christianity is. And in a way, it's unfair of me to assume that atheists should understand arguments for God's existence, okay? Unless they present themselves as someone who does. Uh, I have, you know, a a few uh, books written by, you know, prominent atheists, uh, and I will, you know, criticize them and, and, and read them critically because they are claiming to understand the arguments and uh, and yeah, rebutting them, so they've opened themselves up to that type of criticism. What I found mainly is that um, uh, philosophers like Daniel Dennett and um, you know zoologists—I guess he's a zoologist like uh, Richard Dawkins—does um, not understand the, um, the uh, arguments for God's existence because in their books they actually change the arguments. Uh, and then the change that they made, that's what they beat up to show that the argument doesn't work. And a lot of times, arguments will work syllogistically, which means that there's generally a few premises and then the conclusion that follows. So if premise one and two are correct, then the conclusion follows. For example, um, you know, if, I, if I were to say uh, uh, Socrates is a man, that would be premise one. Premise two, all men are mortal then the conclusion would be Socrates is mortal. Okay, so you would have to prove that either premise one or premise two was wrong in order for the conclusion not to follow. Um, But there's also uh, the concept where the conclusion does not follow, like premise one and premise two might be true, but the conclusion has nothing to do with it. For example, um, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, Steelers are the best football team in the world. Okay, so even though that conclusion is true, 
that doesn't mean, and I'm just, I'm kidding about that, you know. But but you could see how, even though premise one and premise two are true, the conclusion doesn't follow. So that's also something that we have to watch out for. But what I want to do is I want to discuss how we know that God exists. And as a Christian, Christians rely heavily on Scripture, okay, in general, they all do, but people have said, "Well, it's circular logic to say um, I believe the God. I believe in God because the Bible tells me, you know, or I believe that God exists because the Bible tells me that God exists." And well, how do you know that the Bible is true? Well, because it comes from God. How do you know God exists? Well, because the Bible tells me. That's circular logic. Okay. Actually, if you read the Bible carefully, it it tells you not to use circular logic in that sense. Um, what we have is arguments from Scripture. What's what's interesting, too, about it, you know, a little side note here, is that um, Scripture never argues for God's existence. It, the Bible never argues for the existence of God. It always assumes God's existence. It doesn't argue for it, which I always found kind of interesting. Now, in the book of Romans, um, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he starts it out by saying, and Romans is a, a great book if you want to understand kind of the overview theology of salvation from Paul's point of view, okay, the, his soteriology. Um, but some of the things that he says in there tip us off to what he is talking about and who he was talking about. So in, in Romans 1, I'll read it from chapter 18 here. Um, you know, some, some Bibles have it, you know, titled The Condemnation of Unrighteousness. And this is from the Net Bible. Um, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, attributes, which are his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Now, I mean, if, if you're listening to that, and maybe you are a Christian, okay, and you, you hear that and you say, well, yes, of course, that means that everybody... Uh, is held guilty because they are to understand uh, these particular things because God has made it known to them. The problem with that type of interpretation is you are taking it out of context slightly. Okay, And what I mean by that is Paul is addressing the prominent philosophy of the day. Modern atheists today do not have the philosophical background in order to understand 
this this basic truth that Paul is talking about. Okay, something that does not come from Scripture. Remember. When you read about um, you know the, the things in the New Testament where they're talking about things in general, it's what they were talking about and writing about at that time. The, the New Testament didn't exist. It's they're they're writing it. Christianity exists before the New Testament. The New Testament came out of Christianity. You had the Old Testament, but Paul is not going back to the Scripture. He's not going back to the Old Testament to prove that God exists. Okay, he is actually engaging the culture and the philosophy of the day. And we have to understand what the culture and the philosophy of the day was and how we know that he was actually going after it. And verse 22 is really one of the key verses to understand who he is talking about and which philosophy he is talking about. Verse 22 says, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. This is extremely important. That's an extreme, that is a very loaded um, half sentence there. If you've studied philosophy, if you understand the history of philosophy and what's going on here, that will stick out like a sore thumb. Okay. Now, to get into this understanding, we do have to talk philosophically. And there are a lot of people out there. Uh, I've seen atheists on YouTube say things like this, and I want to just address this right now. They have said, philosophy is worthless. It's crap. It's just a bunch of, of, of word salads. It's just a bunch of meaningless words. And it's it's just stupid it's not even a science all right it's it's you can't trust it at all these people also fail to realize that that is a philosophical argument they are arguing philosophically they are using words words carry meaning the one of a, a philosophical law is the law of non-contradiction which means that you cannot have positive A and negative A in the same space at the same time. They contradict each other. Some contradictions would be things like, um, you know, uh, my brother is an only child. Okay, if your brother is an only child, how is he your brother? The definition of that precedes the understanding and shows that that is an incorrect statement. Um, the statement, I cannot speak a word in English, is contradictory. Because just by me having said that, I've contradicted it and shown it to be wrong. To say, there are no sentences longer than three words in the English language, is another contradiction. I hope you can see what I mean here. So to say philosophically that philosophy is useless is to say that I, if philosophy if that's true if that's a true statement and philosophy is useless then what you're saying is wrong that philosophy is useless if it's not true then what you're saying is wrong because philosophy is useful so you're wrong either way and that's what the law of non-contradiction does okay so anyways i wanted to get that out of the way we're going to get to philosophy here now in that time, in the first century, and especially in Rome, and you know, we see this through the book of Acts when, when Paul is in um, Athens and he's uh, discussing 
things and, and, and preaching. He goes to the synagogue to preach to the Jews and some of the Greeks over here, and they're curious about it, and he goes and talks to them in a different language. He uses philosophical language. But we have to understand Stoic philosophy and Platonic thought, okay? Now, Platonic thought has basically five, we can call them big ticket items, okay? These are five main ideas. Four of them are from Plato and a fifth one from Aristotle, okay? But it's what a lot of the Stoics followed, okay? So, the first example, the first idea um, of transcendence is that there is something that surpasses empirical reality. Really, the oldest philosophical question is this, why is there something rather than nothing? Okay, and the universal axiom that comes out of this is that when all options have been deduced, the one remaining option is the right one. So, why is there something rather than nothing? First idea is that there is something that surpasses empirical reality, okay? A modern example used in apologetics is the concept of numbers uh, in the fact that they don't exist except as an abstract concept. But Plato was taking this one step further. He would state that this idea, this usia, uh, as the true essential reality or the reality of things was their true essence, this type of thinking would eventually lead to the devaluing of physical existence because we would say things like, well, we are spirit. We are a spiritual being trapped in a physical body. Okay, that's where that concept comes from. It, it comes from this first idea of Platonic thought. The second idea is the inner aim of human existence. Okay, telos. All right. It means um, uh, like the like the end goal, the end result, the end meaning. Um, you know, teleology is you know the study of uh, things coming to their ultimate conclusion. What is the ultimate end result? Hope I'm using that properly. The striving to become as similar to God as possible is the second idea understanding that Plato had. The person needed to participate in the divine sphere as much as possible. To behave spiritual is to become spiritual. The emphasis here is less on the physical actions and more on the concept of the fact that there is a purpose of mankind's existence. We find this in the church today. Earliest use is with the Cappadocian fathers to describe the ultimate aim of human existence. All right. Third idea. The soul falling from participation in the essential reality that is the spiritual world. Now, reality is a lot of times understood as what we experience and what we know as true. Okay, and, and I know that and I'm using the word true there. It's like, well, you know, what does truth mean? Truth is anything that corresponds to reality. It can sound a bit circular there. Um, but reality is the co what the collective experiences. Okay? You're always going to have varying degrees of understanding. But the majority understanding is generally what is seen as reality. 
Um, an argument for God's existence is called the sensus divinitatis. It's one of them. Um, it's the sense of the divine. Okay, Everyone, everywhere, through all of recorded human history, has a sense of the divine. Okay, That there is something out there. There is a spiritualness. There is you know, something else. Even tribes that have been found... Um, you know, through the through the the centuries, eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth centuries, that have had no outside human contact, okay, from other civilizations, have the sense of the divine, and that's interesting, because it really puts atheism in a minority and kind of in a pinch, because a lot of times these attributes that they have assigned to the divine are similar in a lot of ways. If when you we found remote tribes, they were completely atheistic, okay, no spiritual aspect to them whatsoever, that I think would lend a lot more credibility to an atheistic worldview. But the fact of the matter that we don't have that, we quite frankly have the opposite, that there is a sense of the divine. This goes back to uh, this third idea of uh, Plato, of Platonic thought, okay? Uh, Here we go on to um, flush this out a little bit more. Being on earth in a physical body, then trying to get rid of the bondage of the body and ultimately elevating oneself above the material world. This would need to happen in order, in an ordered set of steps in incremental degrees, okay? And that's the participation in the essential reality that is the spiritual world. Um, so, I mean, a modern understanding of that would be, you know, uh, meditation, um, going into like, you know, Buddhist understanding or just kind of, you know, following your bliss type thing, you know, being true to oneself is a very lazy way I was, I would say of doing it. Um, the fourth idea, I'll just, I don't want to spend too much time musing over all this stuff. The fourth idea is that um, of providence, okay? There is no short example of debates on this aspect, especially when it comes to the sovereignty of God and man's free will. All right, is there libertarian free will? Do we still possess it? Did we ever have it? Is our life fatalistically determined? Is God's sovereignty meticulous or is it general? Am I responsible or am I responsible? Um, in the late ancient world here, um, the anxiety of fate and death was a very powerful thing, and that was part of their everyday lives. Okay, uh, Accident and necessity, or fate, uh, was represented by two Greek goddesses, uh, Teich, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this right. I could say I could say the Teich, or Teichi, and um, Hermione, or Hermione. You know, I'm just going to skip over their names. These, It's written out in... I, I wrote this out in English, and I should have actually written it out in Greek. It would be a lot easier to, to pronounce. But anyways, um, they were the two gods that, you know, uh, discussed, or, or rather represented, um, what people were thinking at that time when it came to when it came to fate you know i mean one was the goddess over um uh, floods and earthquakes and frost and even even politics um the other one was uh the uh, goddess over uh, cause and effect um 
Well, you couldn't stop the bad thing. You couldn't stop things that had already been set in motion. You could influence the direction of the cause for a more favorable outcome. Now, Paul addressing this in Romans chapter 8 um, said that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And the implications of this would be an extremely appealing concept to somebody that had this, this philosophical frame of mind because now, you know, I am protected by uh, somebody that cares, somebody that laid down their life for me. It's an, that had an agape uh, love. Um, and so the fifth idea that was added by Aristotle here was the concept of divine form without matter, perfect in itself. Okay, uh, in Christian in Christian theology, uh, we would articulate this in in three different ways. God is spirit, meaning he's non-corporeal. He's immutable, meaning that he's beyond the ability to change, and he's possessing the attribute of aseity or self-existence as being itself. Okay. And also, Aristotle would, would push that the highest form uh, it would be love, and that it, it's not that God is pushing from the outside, but driving everything finite toward himself by means of love. That God, actually being pure, moves everything by being loved by everything. Everything has the desire to unite itself with the highest form and rid itself of the lowest form, which is the bondage of and to matter. Okay, so these five points here were what was working within Stoic philosophy of the time. Now, the Stoics, um, they would kind of look at these five um, ideas. Okay, the summary in a way would be would be this of the five ideas of spiritual reality. You would have transcendence. You would have purpose, fallen state, providence, and God as the greatest conceivable being. Okay, so before um, the New Testament was written, this was the prominent philosophy of the day. So when we go back and we look at what um, Paul wrote in Romans. And he said, um, you know, uh, um, uh, verse 19 in chapter 1, because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. You can see where... Paul can say this about a culture that philosophically understands the truthfulness through deductive reasoning and through philosophy and, and understanding the world around them. Now, when you take that out, when you remove that understanding from a, from a person, from a society, from whatever, then Paul's statement there does not stand okay you can't it does not it does not stand for that person because he is saying that under the assumption that the people that he's talking to are smart enough to understand this are smart enough to figure this out i've actually sat down and thought about it today 
a lot of atheists sit in echo chambers, and their biggest argument is "nah," and, and I've heard it. I mean. I've spoken with atheists, and I've presented them with a lot of um, our good argumentation and solid rational argumentation, not using the Bible, just going through, uh, you know, we'll go through some of the arguments probably in the next pit here, but like the uh, Kalam cosmological argument, for example. But, um, you know, I've given that to them, and their answer would just be, I just don't believe that. And I'm like, Well, what part don't you believe? Help me to understand why. Well, I just don't believe it. Well, what part? I don't. Just the whole thing. I mean, they're just it. They don't even think through the argument. Well, which premise? Which which thing did I say is wrong? And ultimately, it's they just don't like the conclusion. So they're kind of closing their eyes, sticking their fingers in their ears, and just saying nah, 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 rather than actually dealing with. The arguments now. Not all atheists are like that, but you know, I would say the majority of them are. Or they change the if they repeat it back to you, they always change it. You know, um, so the Stoics here had this concept, and they had this concept also of what's called the logos. And logos means word, and it was a um, a, a divine emanation that came from God that had creative causal power. Okay. John in his gospel uses this word, but refers to Christ as the logos. Okay. And takes this concept that people already had and develops it and changes it to show them that Jesus Christ is the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's showing that the the concept of logos that you have, it's not that it's wrong, it's incomplete. And let me show you the completeness of it that is Jesus Christ. Okay? So the Stoics saw this divine power was present in everything. And because of that, you know, they saw an inherent um, ability within mankind in order to be the best that they possibly could because this Logos was in everyone, all right? Now, the worst thing that you could be within Stoic philosophy was a fool, okay? Because you you may be tempted to think that, um, you know, it sounds like a great idea when you think about the Stoics, but honestly, they're a very pessimistic group because even though everyone ha- may have the potential, very few ever achieved it. They believe that most people were either fools or fell somewhere between fools and wise. And if you, and if you were considered a logikos, you should be more sympathetic to those who had not yet achieved this, but may have the potential to do so. And a logikos is a wise man who is reasonable through faith. Okay, and faith is active, faith is not passive. All right, so, and that's within, because of this metaphysical reality of the divine uh, understanding divine emanation of the Logos, all right? So, you become this Logikos, this wise man, because you understand these concepts, and this makes you smarter, 
Now, the worst thing that you could be, they didn't have sin, a concept of sin, they had a concept of foolishness. It's because you basically are an idiot that that is why you are falling away from the spirit, things of the spiritual and of God and of the divine. So, when Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 22, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. This is exactly what he's talking about. And because of this, this is how we know that Paul was specifically talking about Stoic philosophy and this basic philosophical understanding of um, the existence of God. Okay? And we need to be under that assumption of this interpretation when we make this claim against other people. And if we say, well, you know, atheists are condemned, you know, because they had all the evidence in front of them. Well, if they don't have the Stoic philosophy, we can't rightly use that. And anyways, it's not what we believe or what we don't believe, honestly, that condemns us. It's what we are, the fact that we are fallen, sinful creatures, that we are already condemned. And, you know, we've, we've talked about that in... Um, other theology pits here. But um, hey, I want to thank you for listening to the theology pit. You can, um, you know, uh, subscribe to the theology pit. I get, well, no, like the page on, um, on Facebook, pass the page around, um, share these podcasts with people, uh, let them know about this. You can uh, email me, samson at samsonstick.com. Visit us at samsonstick.com. And uh, don't forget the, uh, the Skype aspect. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. 